Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Margot Tudor to tell us all about her fascinating book that's just come out from Cambridge University Press titled Blue Helmet Bureaucrats, United Nations Peacekeeping and the Reinvention of Colonialism, focusing in particular on the years 1945 to 1971. And as you can probably guess from the title, this book goes into how UN peacekeeping did a whole bunch of things, reconfigured functions of global governance in terms of what was actually happening on the ground, what the UN was doing practically, which had all sorts of implications for local politics, for kind of the concepts and goals of the UN, um, and helping us just get a better sense of what was going on in these diplomatic negotiations, in these kind of practical um initial missions in UN peacekeeping, and especially helping us understand that the UN and the UN peacekeeping was not kind of this magically created thing in 1945 that had never been seen before, how many things, how many aspects of it really do have to be understood um, as having links and ties and continuations from a lot of what had gone before in terms of global governance, which of course is colonialism and imperialism. So this book does a lot of very helpful work in helping us critique, helping us excavate, um, helping us understand this period, kind of what came before it, and obviously we're probably going to get to it, um, what sorts of legacies it led afterwards, some of which we have now. So Margot, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Before we dive into the many things that your book does, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this? Of course. So I'm Margot Tudor. Um, I'm about to start a new position as a lecturer in foreign policy and security at City, uh, which is part of the University of London. But previously, I was a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter, um, and I completed my PhD um, as part of the Humanitarian and Conflict Response Institute at the University of Manchester. So kind of jumped around the UK a little bit over the past few years, um, but will be based in London. Um, and so a large part of why the book has evolved um, over the past few years has been due to those roles. So I was in a very, very interdisciplinary um, PhD environment, um, really, really appreciated the access to conversations with humanitarian practitioners, um, people who were doing field work or about to go on field work, working with MSF, working with Save the Children, um, UK Med, um, and having conversations with people working across really social science disciplines, but also international law history. Um, and Effectively, the idea for the PhD emerged out of my MRES, which I undertook at the University of Bristol. Um, and I, I was effectively I was just frustrated that there wasn't um, an archival study into these formative missions, simply because I just wanted a citation. <laughs> I just wanted to basically, I was making an argument about um, the colonial continuities of the ICC, the International Criminal Court. I was really interested in transitional justice at that time. And the way that I saw it was um, I should probably interrogate um, other 
uh, sites of interventionism or sites of um, liberal justice, these kinds of questions. And I was thinking about peacekeeping and thinking, oh, someone must have written a big history of these formative missions, um, done the archival research in the UN archives um, and really kind of excavated, like you said, these kinds of very granular practices on the ground showing directly that there were these colonial continuities, you know, effectively just kind of um, providing that that bridge in between liberal colonial history, which has been done brilliantly, works Anne Lester, Priya Gopal, all these wonderful scholars, and then actually kind of bridging it into the more IR um, social science scholarship that I was familiar with in my MRES, which was much more kind of present day research um, on institutions in the liberal international order. Um, and so the entire uh, PhD proposal emerged out of frustration that there was there was this absence or this gap in the literature, which I think you know we all as as students seek for, right? We're trying to find those those areas that that haven't been previously um, looked into, perhaps as much in detail. Um, and also was surprised it was it was surprising that there was this gap. So I um, wrote a PhD proposal that was initially a social sciences project, um, but I was encouraged firstly by Dr Emily Bourne, who's a wonderful researcher um, of humanitarianism and Save the Children, um, and who at the time had uh, been one of my tutors at Bristol, and also uh, Dr Eleanor Davey, who then went on to become my PhD supervisor at Manchester, alongside Law Humbert, um, both of whom are incredible, um, uh, to look at it from a much more historical perspective to really kind of examine these colonial continuities. Um, from a historical perspective and that's that that phd thesis is really what the book empirically is based upon obviously a lot of it was revised to a great degree and we can talk about that a little bit later if you want to about that process but um yeah the phd really provided um the bulk of the empirical character of the work and then subsequently i added that first chapter i extended the timeline back to 1945 just like you kind of mentioned in the beginning to really kind of ask answer that question how did we get from not having a, you know a very very protective nation state idea of what sovereignty is and who can exert um, the use of force upon another sovereign power into an international military and that's the kind of answer I try and provide some answers to that question in chapter one but um, yeah it was it was it was a long it's been a bit of a long journey but it's yeah it was published this year so I'm very pleased. Very pleased indeed. Um, I think there's a lot of very interesting books that come from exactly that of, oh, I want to write about this, so I need to cite that. Hang on, what do you mean that doesn't exist? Okay, well, I guess I've got to go do that first. Um, <laughs> and now we have this very useful thing because it does cover quite a crucial period um, for anyone looking to build off of UN peacekeeping later. We, we do kind of need to have something to build off of. Um, so I do want to move vaguely chronologically through the time period. We'll see how much we stick to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I apologize in advance if I jump around. Well, I don't think you'd be the only one necessarily. So we'll see. Um, one thing I'd love to sort of start with, because again, we, we do have these competing ideas, right? That kind of the UN is never never seen before. And yet, hang on, of course, it has other things going on that are influencing it, right? And 
I think in a similar vein, we think of sort of 1945, 1946, 7-8, creation of the UN, um, oftentimes kind of in its own terms. Or if we're thinking of it in terms of influence from the outside, it's often World War II, right? That was so bad, we must prevent it again. But at the exact same time, with a ton of the exact same people, we also see a increased entrenchment, really, of anti-communism. Um, and yet that is not necessarily a strand that we traditionally would think about in terms of how that shaped the early years of the UN, um, which on the face of kind of looking at a timeline seems odd, right? These things are actually happening at the exact same time, but somehow they're in different stories. So you thankfully bring those threads together a lot more. And so I'm wondering if maybe we can start there. How do we see this rise of anti-communism by some of the leading creators of the UN in these initial years of the UN, in the initial years of thinking about UN peacekeeping and that component of the organization? Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating topic because obviously with um, the existing literature, um, my previous understanding completely ignorantly of anti-communism has been, oh, well, I don't write, I'm not a Cold War studies person. Um, you know, we kind of fit ourselves into particular boxes or um, similarly, I'm not a US studies person. So anti-communism would feel um, unfamiliar or, you know, I'm not trying to write an, or, you know, I'd push back and be like, but I'm not trying to write a history of American policy or the history of um, American influence on the UN even. Like that, that's very much not what this is about. And I think um, that was completely from a place of ignorance because there's been such a wealth of literature um, and uh, incredible research that's been done in the past kind of five years, but I think that will also be kind of coming out um, PhD students who will be publishing um, over the next few years about anti-communism from this much more kind of international history or global history kind of perspective, um, thinking about anti-communism much more broadly than just, you know, US state policy. Um, and, you know, part of that from my perspective is, yes, that the UN was very much financially tied to the US um, and politically uh, was you know, based physically in the US. And um, various scholars have done great work on that kind of geographic tension as well. Uh, what do you do when your headquarters is kind of based in a country and those kinds of navigations? Dexter Fergie, for instance, wonderful scholar. Um, but when thinking about anti-communism, I wanted to really show that there were independent ideologies of what that meant within the UN. Like this was not a policy that was just assumed and um, accepted because we're stooges of the US. You know, we're just we just follow follow that US policy um, independently. Um, the leaders of the um, UN sought to conceive of anti-communism as a peace and security um, mechanism, as a way, as a strategy for ensuring, just like you said, we do not see a third world war. And so in this, you know, very uh, volatile period at the beginning of the Cold War, but uh, a period also of, of great anxiety within the uh, Second World War victors nations who were examining the context of the global south um, with horror as as liberationist movements kind of uh, shook um, their understanding of what the rest of the 20th century would look like, but also what the rest of um, European hegemony would look like. So I think when I was thinking about anti-communism, it was very much distinctly within a particular um, culture of the organisation at that time, which was also framed very much as we are a 
organization that is framed entirely on, you know, trying to prevent future conflict. So how can we try and prevent future conflict? Oh, well, we deem communism as this, or, or the, um, and particularly the Soviet Union as being this very particular threat to um, the security um, of the global south because they're supporting these Afro-Asian movements, they're supporting anti-colonial movements. And obviously there's there's so much we can unpack about that, about how the Soviet Union in itself um, was, you know, adopting many, many different forms of imperialist practices, but also diplomatic um, engagement with um, and through aid and through um, uh cultural powers that are but cultural diplomacy etc so we can talk about also how the soviet union also kind of exerted that imperialist power but there was definitely this 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 idea of anti-communism um being the best way to pursue um a strategy of avoiding a third world war within um the un as an organization and that was specifically seeing that through um the leadership that was then during the 1950s kind of subject to the us um red scare effectively that um swept up the nation and um and which kind of further entrenched that idea of anti-communism but um I, what I really try and do is show that that anti-communism as a strategy for international security was something um, already within the organisation and that that was kind of uh, reinforced through these processes of purging the UN Secretariat and um, staffing high-level leadership positions um, with people who agreed with that line Um so yeah, hopefully that's kind of answered your question there about anti-communism, but equally kind of opened up several other lines of inquiry potentially as well. <laughs> well, before we get too far down that one, I kind of want to complicate it by bringing in other things um, and then we'll sort of see how they unfold. Um, <laughs> of because if anti-communism is part of this already and then gets further entrenched, of course, um, the other thing that's part of this already and then gets further entrenched is colonialist paternalism. Um, so not just colonialism in general, but kind of that particular attitude in the way that anti-communism is a particular attitude in a sense. Um, so just like you've kind of taken us through how anti-communism is um, embedded in these structures early on, can you do the same for colonialist paternalism? Yeah, and I think this is this is specifically coming from my work um, in humanitarianism studies or histories of humanitarianism, um, which is you know, inherently grounded in these processes of liberal colonialism, the civilizing mission, this idea that there is inherently um, a society or the, the world is split into civilized and quote unquote uncivilized people. And that being very much a way of thinking about society building, state building um, and law and order and global governance more broadly. And so when I was thinking about paternalism within the UN, you see that inherently just as a power dynamic from the very beginning, because that's been an entrenched um, method of understanding um security but more broadly within kind of peacekeeping um missions a specific way of um stabilizing um insecure environments and so that's very much this this inheritance from the language a recoding of um the civilizing mission kind of language that we see in um the priya gopal's work on liberal colonialism in um 
with the British Empire and similarly Priyasati has also written brilliantly about this kind of very specific dynamic of administration um, and the paternalism within these colonial administrations and how those conceptions are very um, heavily built into these hierarchies where we have, raci- yes, racialized ideas, but then also these these very kind of complicated structures of elites, so local elites um, and education hierarchies as well being built in. And, and, and so all of those kinds of um, processes, but also incur- you know, inherently racialized structures of who is, quote, not yet ready for independence or, you know, that kind of level of power to who, to, to give someone the power of, of making that claim at all, making a claim to independence, um, is something that I work on and, uh, and, and describe as gatekeeping, this kind of gatekeeping role of the UN. Um, and that's very much also this part of a pedagogical form of internationalism. So the idea that we will teach you the ways of governance um, and that's uh, obviously inherently part of the civilizing mission and it's it's also very much built into the mandates um, of the UN peacekeeping missions which are kind of instructed to help um, support these these new new states as they shift from colonial um, oppression into uh, supposedly kind of the, this this wonderful state that, conf- that conforms to this liberal international order, uh, but the capitalist um, global economy, etc. Um, and so it, it is, it's, it's trying to trace that lineage of that power dynamic between colonialist paternalism through humanitarian kinds of language and guises, but also international development and um, the way that development, uh, the idea that uh, we have a progress narrative, we have, we have a state that goes from a blank slate, so-called, with this period of colonialism um but that's obviously apoliticized we don't you know we don't we don't interrogate why perhaps the um so the levels of education are low or levels of uh, literacy are low we don't interrogate those kinds of questions or perhaps question what, what forms of literacy we're interrogating because obviously lots of people were literate um and fluent in their own languages and that that had been suppressed and there were these kinds of ongoing colonial um uh, systems and structures that had prevented people from um, being able to speak their own languages, engage with their own cultures. But then also when the UN kind of, um, I'm thinking specifically of the Congo mission in this um, in this moment, just with this very much a civilian um, mandate to try and prop up the state, effectively just um, adopt a very similar colonial paternalistic position of governance, just as the Belgian, previous Belgian colonial officials did. So we see this paternalism running through as a governance strategy that um, tries to kind of impose a particular form of future, both political, cultural, social, um, upon a society. And there isn't a real interrogation of what a colonial, the, hor- the violence of a colonial past may have done in order to influence and shape what quote unquote appears as a blank slate to the UN's particular or the UN staff's particular ideas of what um, a state should be aiming for in particular quotas, because we have this particular kind of quantification, um, lots of emphasis on stats and data, um, modernization theory, ideas about progress. And so rather than challenging that and thinking, 
okay, well, what what kind of historical lineages, what kind of experience has this population um, pushed back against, you know, fought against in order to achieve independence? And how has that um, perhaps going to change how we think about governance and administration um, and law and order and policing, militarised policing, etc.? Um, rather than that, there's this very fixed idea of, of imposing um, a paternalistic... Um, approach, which is um, very infantilizing, obviously, as well. Um, and that is is also inherently racialized in with particular conceptions of um, capacity, like really, really quite um, concerning quotes um, from the UN officials um, in their progress reports, but also personal letters about what they believe the psychological incapacity, quote unquote, of um, host populations is if they push back or if there's any critique or if there's any kind of questioning of the uh, UN's peacekeeping approach uh, with specific missions. So yeah, I think um, this idea of paternalism um, is, is inherent really to that, to that process of um, having that relationship between a peacekeeper and civilian. Mm. So I want to kind of poke at something you've implied and I want to go farther into it because I think it's really important for your argument and also sort of for doing this kind of history, right? A lot of these ideas in terms of what should a state be and who gets to go for independence, a lot of those decisions sort of have the implication that they're decided at UN headquarters, at the Security Council, in the writing of a UN peacekeeping um, mandate, and sort of at that kind of very high politics level. And of course, a lot of those decisions are at that level, and that is where those conversations are happening. But there's also the element that's sort of threaded through your answer of kind of, well, what about the actual who gets to be the bureaucrat on the ground implementing this? What is the relationship between the peacekeeper and the civilian, as you just said? And that's something that I think we need to make sure we are looking for in the archives and that we're thinking about that it's not just the high politics level. It's also the really practical on the ground, what actually happened. And thankfully, you did that. Um, you looked at both levels. So I'm going to ask you kind of a bit more to kind of poke at this a bit. So with this anti-colonialism or the anti-communism and the colonial paternalism, we've got all these different threads going along what can we see in terms of actual on-the-ground UN peacekeepers who, you know, may or may not be engaged in the high politics? What were they doing that was either consciously or unconsciously carrying over from colonial experiences and institutions? Oh, I mean, that question is the, the exact core, the exact core of what it was trying to do, because um, I think what you're saying is completely accurate in the sense that when we think about the UN, often there's a number one, it's a monolith. There's this huge organisation that we kind of uh, imagine as one united force of, of thought, of ideology, um, of staff. But of course, it's a huge organisation with thousands and thousands of people. Um, even when it was a young organisation, it's, it's a huge bureaucracy. Um, and so obviously, the conversations that go on within the deliberative forums, so the General Assembly, uh, the various committees, the Security Council, obviously, which I have a lot of problems with politically and historically. Um, but thinking a little bit about those those diplomatic spaces, having colonial continuities is incredibly important. I think that I think the work that's being done, especially by lots of people in historical IR, um, to interrogate those colonial structures um, within those diplomatic spaces is incredibly important. But it's not where I 
am particularly focused because I'm, as you said, I focus on practice. So I focus on what these granular um, colonial experiences tell us or the colonial kind of continuities through these lived experiences of peacekeepers, but also um, the civilians on the ground. And that's that that disconnect really between what the conversations that are going on to these kind of um, very cosmopolitan, um, anti-colonial supposedly debates going on in the General Assembly at the time. We have these big shifts um, within uh, the membership of the UN at this moment. So we've got loads of different countries um, achieving independence from the Afro-Asian nations um, and across uh, all kinds of parts of the global south and we suddenly have um, a majority of global south nations within coming up to 1960 we've got this this real moment um, where the power dynamic is supposedly shifting in the UN headquarters but what my history is is that's all great. <laughs> That's great that those those leaders, these global south elites, uh, these politicians, um, who are also all men, obviously, um, are having these conversations and saying and having these wonderful kind of debates and the, all this wonderful rhetoric that we can all interrogate. And I think it's very important. But the disconnect between those conversations and the reality on the ground. And indeed, this idea that the UN is just a forum rather than itself a historical agent. So I think about the UN staff having political agency, having that kind of responsibility, having these internal tensions with what's going on in New York. Um, And some of my more recent work that's come out of the book or kind of has been um, developing from kind of the, the, the bigger book project, which kind of took on many different strands, is thinking about how particular forms of field based um anti-bureaucratism almost um emerge in the field because there's this encouragement that to really experiment on the ground that you don't have um and so what also kind of happens with that with that dynamic of experimentism and as we just discussed about paternalism is we end up with instances of misconduct and and that's not something I want to get into too much but I'm sorry it's on my mind at the moment because I'm just writing about it um but yeah so when we're thinking about these specific colonial experiences on the ground we're also thinking on a very granular level so on all in almost all of my um case studies which I look specifically at the first four armed peacekeeping missions um from uh UNF, which was 1956, which was in Egypt, all the way through to um, Cyprus, which um, many of your listeners will probably know, it, it remains on the ground in a protracted conflict. So there, there's this kind of um, jumping around the globe kind of dynamic to these different case studies, and each are in very unique, different you know, temporal, but also geographics, dynamics of their colonial relationships. Some are just becoming independent when the peacekeeping mission comes in. Like Congo, the uh, UN mission happens two weeks after Independence Day, or the, the the violence erupts two weeks after Independence Day, and the Onuk mission is kind of imposed within a month. Um, whereas in other conflicts, such as UNF, which is the first armed peacekeeping mission in 1956 it responds to the Suez mission you know ostensibly Egypt has been independent from Britain for a very long time at that period I mean obviously there's been brilliant work done by uh, Dr Yasmin um, Ghani who's also working on Egypt at the moment that discusses perhaps those kinds of relationships between Britain and Egypt should be 
interrogated a lot later, you know, those entanglements, the fact that Britain remained, had a military presence on the ground a lot later, those should be interrogated. But one of the continuities that I think is so explicit is that the UN collaborates with these ex-colonial or ex-European colonial powers in its peacekeeping missions, regardless. So in all of my instances, in all of my case studies, we have this technical, so um, often the UN is kind of under-resourced when these peacekeeping missions are, are constructed. It's often in a kind of very rapid um, emergency context. Um, there's been um, a violent um, eruption, or, sorry, an eruption of violence, and there's an immediate need. There's this international pressure on the UN. And so instead of preparing the UN with this kind of a permanent army, which is something I also interrogate as more and more people start asking, God, maybe we should think about having some resources permanently rather than constantly having to rely upon um, this this very, very crazy uh, situation before every mission where we don't have the resources and we don't have the staff and we have to really kind of do these very, very complicated and politically charged um, negotiations to get, um, weaponry and and you know uniforms and and pe- like the enough battalions from enough uh, different contributing countries that aren't kind of um, it ally uh, allies or enemies with any of the people involved in the conflict. You know, there's all kinds of very difficult conversations to have about a peacekeeping mission, um, and so the resources often becomes this thing that falls through the cracks and really is not something that gets up to a professional standard or what you would expect from a kind of military or indeed a civilian administration until much later in the mission. And so I look a lot of the time in my case studies at this this moment of transfer, you know, the transfer of power where it goes from the host state because we're in a moment where peacekeeping missions require the consent of um, uh, the, the peacekeeping missions require the consent of the host state's government, which again is something that's obviously very politically contested um, at the time. Who is able to give consent? Who is the host state's kind of leading head of state at that time? Um, that becomes a question for international lawyers. Um, and then we have this this transfer of power and we see a lot of the time, I mean, in UNEF, for instance, UN officials giving the ex-colonial power, in this case Britain, a shopping list um, because they need to have X amount of trucks and they don't have them and they know that the colonial power has them because they have this ongoing military relationship, which is obviously a huge aspect of the conflict itself that the peacekeeping mission is there to pacify. So there are these explicitly um, overt complicit interactions between the ex-colonial power or indeed the new colonial power as with Indonesia and West Papua and how those collaborate together. But then also many of the staff, the UN staff themselves on the ground, this mid-level leadership have colonial past and experiences and backgrounds. Um, Their careers um, being in this kind of international um, humanitarian kind of sector that is an area which um, many, many scholars have discussed. This this is fluid movement of staff in between colonial administrations and then following the end of empire, quote unquote, um, we have this move where many move into NGOs, uh, Save the Children, for instance, the ICRC, um, International Committee of the Red Cross um, and the UN 
And because they have languages or they have kind of geographic expertise or they have um, contacts on the ground or they already live there, then it kind of leads naturally to um, these people being chosen as preferred members of staff um, experts, indeed. And obviously, we can talk more about expertise. So yeah, I think there's there's many, many specific kind of instances of colonial kinds of continuities at a granular level that the book really interrogates on a mission by mission um, stance. But the real kind of big picture of these, um, yeah, like a continuity that I see in every single one is this collaborative, this collaborative effort, um, regardless of whether they know that that I mean, in the instance with Britain and Egypt, Britain at the time was the occupying power because we just had the Suez crisis. And Suez, so the entire point of UNEF or a large part of the mandate was withdrawing the British and the French from the ground. So we see there this kind of complicated instance where the UN is simultaneously seeking to withdraw um, and and demilitarise Britain from their occupation of the Suez region, um, whilst at the same time kind of whispering in their ear, like, and if you could leave some of your stuff on the way out, that would be great. Um, Which obviously kind of leads to these complicated diplomatic relations um, between Britain and the UN, but also specifically kind of NASA's government as Egypt, kind of head of state at that moment. So, yeah. Thank you for kind of going into the complexities of it, because I think that's it's so tempting to go, oh, no, no, wait, it's a simple story. Oh, this is too complicated. Let's not bother. Right. The complexity is the point. So that's, I think, really important to go into. Um, Now, I'm in a bind because you've given me two things in particular that I really like to follow up on. I'm trying to decide which one to do first. Um, So. I'm going to go with this one first because it's the first one you mentioned in that answer, um, which is this is a lot of this time period is what we might call the era of decolonization. Now, obviously, that doesn't include all of it. Some decolonization is before, some is after. You could make all sorts of arguments that we haven't done it at all even now. Um, But there is this time period where at least from the UN's point of view, we see a ton of new states joining that changes voting patterns, that changes all sorts of other things. Um, And you sort of dropped in there kind of, how did UN peacekeeping react to decolonization? Um, I think we can already have the short answer of not well. Um, But I'd love for you to kind of tell us a bit more about it, because one of the things that seems quite consistent across the missions you looked at is that you talk about how UN peacekeepers, um, especially those on the ground, used the missions that had anything to do with decolonizing, mostly to improve the reputation of the UN rather than to, like, you know, help with the process of decolonizing. And obviously, I'm making an overgeneralization, but you are the expert. So could you dive us into that sort of, what were they doing? What was the reputational thing? What does this have to do with decolonization? Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't like it's it's very tempting to generalize with um, a lot of these situations just because this is um, it's obviously a sweeping kind of history. But I um, uh, I would 100 percent agree. I think there was there was definitely a reputational um, or a period. It's a period of reputational crisis that kind of coincides with when I'm looking at the UN in this particular period. So inherently, you know, there's this financial and reputational crisis that emerges 
during Congo because the Congo crisis um, leads to, I mean, it's just a huge mission. So financially, immediately, the UN's on the back foot. Um, they also then get into a series of military controversies um, that lead to um, this, this kind of incredible reputational storm both with the Afro-Asian bloc, but also the Soviet Union and also the US. So kind of everyone has an issue specifically um, with the UN during this period. And that really challenges, obviously, its operational capacity as an organisation that's run off of consensus um, and, and run off of reputational um power because this is still a period is still kind of something that I try and emphasize all the way through is that this is a young organization trying to build up its reputation as a credible uh, peace and conflict organization it is it exists to resolve and to maintain global peace and order and it can only do that if member states engage with it and believe in it and in continue to vote for its interventions and also continue using its its deliberative um, spaces to discuss how the UN can continue to improve in the future and make these 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 changes to global society. So it really requires like and obviously and on a fundamental level funding, um, which is entirely member state um, run. So it's a it's a huge it's a huge conversation about reputation. And I think rather than kind of saying, oh, you know, that kind of flippant thing of like they were doing it to make themselves look good obviously that's a very kind of glib way of putting it and when I talk about reputation it's like a very specific idea a very protective idea at this moment as well Um, and we have to remember this kind of bigger political context of the UN um, being um, very very young and also in the midst of a cold war and really trying to assert itself on this kind of global marketplace of other forms of conflict um, response kind of spaces so the alternative to other superpowers effectively um but i would agree i think uh, you know uh, fundamentally we're shifting away from this totalizing kind of critique right so we're shifting much more towards this idea that um these decolonization processes um it's it's not a, a simple answer of the un had a really bad time of it or a really good like success or failure you know they're kind of undergrad question that we always used to answer as essays was it a, was there a success or failure for UN during decolonization inherently I find that very very difficult to answer because the UN didn't have one like aim because obviously the whole point of the book is that there are multiple and different levels different members of staff with different interests and also if we're talking about did the quote-unquote did the UN kind of do well during decolonization or succeed or fail or whatever I think a lot of the time what people mean is how did the UN facilitate member states to kind of have anti-colonial or indeed pro-colonial um, experiences during decolonize or during this kind of moment of decolonization this wave of decolonization like you say it's complicated to talk about it but this particular kind of moment for decolonization um and so i think what's complicated is that that's not what i don't write about those member states experiences ex- uh, at, at that level at that high level of diplomatic level what i write about is on the ground i see obstructive practices and so that's what I can speak to is that there are these uh, definite obstructive processes, these gatekeeping processes. And then I also discuss how those filter upwards. 
which, you know, is, is an uncomfortable kind of method of us thinking about, um, you know, field based knowledge production is that it it goes up just, you know, uh, policy, state poli- uh, organizational policy filtered up through to the organization just as mandates and strategies and imp- leadership pressure filtered down towards the field. So we have this kind of back and forth between the two. And obviously, communications were completely different then as well. The, the kind of management of the field was was a completely different um, setup than it would be today um, technologically. So there's a lot more independence of field-based organisers to obstruct because they see certain states being, quote-unquote, not yet ready for independence. Um, perhaps that's a racial... I mean, it's almost in <laughs> in all my cases, it was a racialized kind of conception, um, which was uh, particularly overt in these environments, you know, the obstruction being um, something that they can enforce due to that kind of powerful level of leadership in the field and then being able to relate that back to the UN headquarters and saying, hey, we're the experts on the ground in this conflict talking to these politicians and we don't believe we we believe that the conflict is x y and z um and so when that happens with decolonization especially because there's so many um eyes watching these period these processes of decolonization due to its ramifications for different european um nations you know we can talk about the domino effect etc because these are such internationally crucial crises uh the un recognizes the reputational um baggage that comes with that but then the staff are also kind of um very protective over what they think the organization is actually trying to do and there's that disconnect again between um the anti-bureaucratism on the ground and the very kind of um politically um savvy kind of some of the anti-colonial more anti-colonial rhetoric that we have coming out post 1960 resolution 1514 which we kind of see as this moment of oh the un is an anti-colonial organization this is great we have confirmation of it and then what we actually see on the ground in these instances of peacekeeping missions during this this kind of very um like slow (laughs) like day-to-day experience of what decolonization is which is kind of legal complications um all of the paperwork being in the wrong language uh what kind of leadership are we going to bring in you know we don't have anyone to run a hospital because the previous leadership didn't think to transfer power properly you know all these kinds of the things that be on the sexy quote-unquote aspects of decolonization studies these aspects are what the peacekeeper mission kind of take up as their day-to-day in these kinds of civilian operations and so that's what i see the un obstructing i see these these decolonization processes being obstructed in in very particular ways and then also perhaps obstructed but also shaped so especially when we've got to places like congo where independence has already been achieved so the question of obstructing independent of decolonization is is moot kind of in that situation but there is an opportunity there for the un to shape the independence of congo recognizing Recognizing its Central African kind of power for being such an incredibly important political um, power and and country at that moment because it's got so many different neighbouring nations and political relationships um, that mean that it has such a great impact and influence over other anti-colonial movements in Africa at that time, such as Algeria and South Africa and all these other conversations that are going on in the country, but also economically 
uh, Congo had a significant kind of economic resource. Um, and so whereas in my West Papua chapter, we're looking directly as at the UN as obstructing decolonization and indeed kind of encouraging the recolonization of a population that is um, really, really seeking independence or at least um, a plebiscite. Um, in Congo, we see much more this kind of covert political shaping with it from the field of what the country should look like um, politically after independence um, and taking advantage of this moment of violence to really shape that from the inside out um, but yeah it's it's really complicated because like you say there's not there's not like a simple answer for decolonization because we can't even say decolonization without saying I mean this generation of decolonization and obviously I think yeah there's some great work that's been done on uh, you know, it, th- that being an open question um, and remaining an issue for the 21st century as well. Mm. Staying, however, in your time period for a bit, um, I think we will get on to some after effects um, a little bit later on. Um, I think this idea of kind of, there, there's sort of the plans never quite going the way that they're meant to. Okay, to some extent, that's true of all plans, right? The idea of communication, meaning that decisions have to be made in the field. Again, well, they didn't have smartphones. So, okay, fair enough. Um, But then there's some other things that you're talking about, right? That there are certain goals being made that then people on the ground are going, actually, now that I'm here, I'm not so sure about that, right? That there's operational aspects, practical things that need to happen that maybe weren't thought through in New York because those are not problems that exist in New York. Um. And some of that is kind of just practical, but you also talk in the book about a, quote, misalignment of imaginaries, right? That there's a conceptual element here of of a mismatch that in some senses we've talked about kind of top down and sort of bottom up influence within peacekeeping. Um, But I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about that bigger picture misalignment um, between the goals of like, what is the point of UN peacekeeping? What are we aiming to do with this? And the realities of what's happening diplomatically, operationally in these initial missions? Yeah, and I think I'll just try and kind of keep this relatively brief because I'm very aware that I've been giving incredibly long answers. Um, so, yeah, exactly. And I think this this misalignment is something that um, comes from what I perceive as as being a specific uh, and distinct or particular culture of field-based peacekeeping. Um, and that emerges out of a specific and distinct relationship or perceived relationship with the host state, its population, its environment, all of these kinds of um, geopolitical pressures that are put on staff in the field. Um, And so this can also, I mean, I realise I've been talking very critically, so this can also be kind of a misalignment um, that pushes back on those kind of diplomatic conversations towards a much more kind of progressive politics, I think some of us would conceive of. So I'll try and give an example that tries to give that rather than kind of going along the same answers. So in Cyprus, we have um, a particular kind of process of mediation. It's uh, supposedly a separate aspect of the UN intervention in Cyprus during um, the conflict, which begins in 1964. um, And 
I mean, I kind of argue that there is this effort to separate the mediation and the peacekeeping mission, but inherently the mediation is there to support the peacekeeping mission and the peacekeeping mission doesn't exist without this kind of, it's kind of pacifying efforts whilst the mediation conversations go on. So they are inherently kind of sister missions um, or sister operations of the UN on the ground and the staff obviously interact heavily. And so when we've got... um, these mediate them with the mediator on the ground um we have galo plaza who um was an ecuadorian politician um great kind of figure for giving a good quote at a press conference if anyone's interested got some interesting kind of press conference quotes from him um and he was on the ground in cyprus and he um very much kind of went um and pushed back against the idea of the mediator being someone who sits in an office um and uh, in in kind of the headquarters, the UN headquarters, and doesn't really talk to anyone, but kind of makes up his mind, maybe talks to a couple of political leaders, you know, the heads of state, um, has a chat with the secretary general, and then makes and makes a report based on those very, very limited conversations, um, which had been what his predecessor had done in Cyprus. So he he takes on this role after the, the, the first mediator um, sadly dies whilst in the midst of um, negotiations and so what this previous negotiator had done was chosen to do all of his negotiations by bringing together in a in one room the heads of the the relevant kind of heads of state or politicians um that he felt he needed to interrogate and ha- you know kind of push towards a consensus or push towards this kind of um at least a ceasefire kind of conversation um and that was done in geneva and there was this very much kind of um obviously geneva being just like New York, this very important kind of um, liberal international order city. Um, A lot of the UN's infrastructure is already there um, and it it feels very much like part of the international community. And so that felt very much different. That was a high-level diplomatic conversation and Galo Plaza took the approach of actually having conversations with local activists, local people moving around the country taking advantage of the fact that the UN peacekeepers were at the time were some of the very few who had mobility in Cyprus during this moment because of the UN had imposed a partition um, that was also supported by the paramilitary groups on the Turkish Cypriot site um, and the Greek Cypriot army, but obviously had caused a huge amount of displacement and um, violence for the actual populations of those those ethnic groups. And so there was this, this ongoing partition that meant that there was a large buffer zone in the middle, this big split down the middle of Cyprus that I'm sure we're all aware of, the Green Line. And Gala Plaza kind of was able to use the privilege of the mobility privilege of being part of this this mission to have conversations with different people and, and, you know, interrogate what potentially a solution could be to the crisis. And so this misalignment between the imaginaries was really stark because there were all these high level conversations going on with the secretary general and um, his the kind of various other uh, UN secretariat officials who felt very involved in what they thought the Cyprus conflict should look like or what the resolution should look like. And then his report really challenged all of this because he was actually having conversations um, and, and interrogating, you know, the historical and political lineages of this crisis, but also the British colonial kind of um, ongoing colonial legacies on the island and how the British were continuing to have this very damaging political influence, um, reinforcing these damaging binaries between the Turkish and um, Greek Cypriots and, and really kind of um, exerting um, legacies that were affecting this post-colonial future. 
sovereign imaginary for the country. So yeah, I think there's there's obviously <laughs> there's obviously the a lot of different situations where I talk about this misalignment between the imaginaries and a kind of um, the UN in in New York being uh, providing a lot of or the 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 staff there, the leadership there being providing a lot of kind of anti colonial rhetoric, and then on the ground me kind of demonstrating a lot of kind of very overt imperialist. Um, were and racialized kind of practices by the UN staff. But actually I'm trying to I'm trying to like just to show that it's not a one-trick pony. Um there is this kind of instance where we've got um a field-based official using I mean unfortunately the report was not um <laughs> adopted and unfortunately the crisis in, in Cyprus continues but I do think this is an important moment uh Plaza's report um kind of revealing to us like how complicated it is to be um a field-based official who's trying to act actually um, have these conversations on the ground and use that privilege to the benefit of the conflict resolution and then having that challenged by the diplomatic sphere, even mm-hmm. though the Secretary General eventually kind of supported the report, it became diplomatically a really difficult situation. But yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting instance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you shared it with us um, to give us kind of a sense of what's happening and kind of there is... I think it's very easy to think of sort of there's lots of debates when creating a peacekeeping mission and then it's deployed. It's like, no, 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 the debates continue. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's actually happening and what they're meant to be doing, that continues to be very much a debate, um, not just in the missions that you look at in the book, but also in UN peacekeeping uh, further on. So could I ask you a little bit about what you think the legacies are or maybe the bits that we still have with us from what you've investigated in the book? Yeah, so I mean, and I don't, I I don't want to <laughs> say I'm an expert on this at all because it is very much my I am, I am a Cold War decolonization era person for this for peacekeeping because then peacekeeping kind of go go through this huge transformation during the 1990s with the creation of um, the Department for Peacekeeping Operations, which um ju- so just in and also for any UN historians listening at home, this will sound completely familiar, but so much of your work is structurally trying to understand effectively who reports to who, what level of the organisation they're at, what sector they're in. I mean, honestly, there's just so many kind of organisational plans on my desk. It's just, it's a headache. But originally, peacekeeping was under the purview of the Secretary General. It was part of the Secretariat because it was part of this um, inherent or core aspect of the UN, which is... Uh, peace and security and it's part of the UN charter and it's you know it's it's in, it's a core part of the UN mission but as the UN grows and um the co- kind of complicated aspect of peacekeeping mission kinds of um becomes uh all these kind of permanent staff complicates this organization um even further there becomes this split a split so this breakaway so there becomes the creation of DPKO as its own individual um, aspect of the organization which then means that there's greater separation between the secretary general and the department which i suppose is also a reflection of uh, the organization re- realizing that the reputational crisis of the organization was so personal during my period of study because the secretary general was so heavily involved in these peacekeeping missions their direction their policy their decision making all of that was obviously as you know we discussed there's so much being done in the field but the faith of the mission and the face of the organization was the secretary general and they were very heavily involved in a lot of the mandate creation for instance and kind of continuing to have 
visits and that kind of sort of thing. Whereas in the 1990s, there is this greater split. And so I think that challenges some of these continuities slightly in the sense that what I'm so interested in is like how that that personal political reputational aspect and that disconnect between the organization and the field um it it becomes even more complicated afterwards because you've got so many different um organizational aspects to it but there's definitely continuities in the sense of um the troop dynamic and that's something that I'm going to be looking at in my second book project is focusing much more on um those continuities of um, identity, like how peacekeepers conceive of duty, um, their duty on the ground, this very kind of uh, religious connotations with that, obviously, but that also um, has these very colonial paternalistic connotations as well. There's some great work as well that's been done on IR, which I I read a lot of contemporary peacekeeping, or sorry, not contemporary, but like present day peacekeeping work um, by uh, Lou... Pinho, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong. I feel really bad, but we're really like, she's a friend. And um, also Andrea Steinek, I think I'm pronouncing her name wrong as well. But anyway, so there's lots of work and she works on Haiti. They both work on Haiti and there's been some fascinating work on um, UN and policing and militarization that I can see some real similarities with with the counterinsurgency work that's been done. Um, for instance, some of my stuff on Cyprus um, really feels like it has some continuities with those experiences of this much more civilian um, administration or an effort at, effort at state building in Haiti, effectively. Um, and then also my work on misconduct has these parallels that I'm really trying to draw out. Um, it's really complicated because there aren't many instances in or historical kind of um, records of um, official misconduct. Um, so it's something that is, is a bit more difficult to find those those archival instances. But yeah, definitely a lot of lineages, a lot of legacies that we can see of these kinds of structures. I mean, we, we've kept the veto. <laughs> So we've still got the Security Council. We can't get rid of it now. We cannot remove the veto. And it's like there's so many structures like that that, like, I wake up in the middle of the night and stress about. But um, And I suppose also there's just a conversation about, like, with Libya we had it, with Syria we had it this conversation between balancing state sovereignty with hum- the, the necessity of humanitarian intervention, um, the rhetoric of humanitarian intervention always being um, having these these incredibly kind of colonial overtones. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, but also simultaneously the accusation then being, so there's no kind of internationalist form of interventionism that isn't imperialist and then I kind of I think there's some great work that's being done on socialist solidarity and compassion movements that were ongoing during the anti-colonial period that we can really learn from um so people like Sulin Lewis um and um various other um, and a billion other wonderful people are, are working on those and drawing out those perhaps more inspirational forms of um humanitarian um support that don't have those power dynamics that are so hierarchical yeah but it's complicated 
other people's work is nice and inspiring, but you did mention a bit about your other work. So that's where I'd like to finish off. Um, the book is out. Obviously, you traced us through kind of the different things that influenced us and led, it, led us to this point. Um, but what are you working on now that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Yeah, well, that's really, uh, yeah, it's really sweet. So I'm about to start a new position, which is, is, is really lovely. That means that I'll have a lot more time to work on my uh, my own work, which is obviously much more UN peacekeeping. I've, so I've just, uh, I just finished a peacekeeping, um, an article on peacekeeping uh, misconduct, which I just kind of briefly mentioned throughout. And that's hopefully going through peer review at the moment. So we cross fingers and we pray to the peer review gods and etc. Um, and I'm also um, completing a couple of articles that came out of my postdoc with on a project about um, public inquiries, the history of public inquiries into British military intervention in Iraq. So hopefully they will be interesting to those of you who are interested in um, transitional justice or um, institutions, state power, state violence, how we interrogate who's allowed to use force in conflict and who's not, um, and how a, you know, a state, um, try a liberal democracy tries to protect itself through its own kind of performative aspects of liberalism, which we look at through the case study of the, or the, the instrument, the technology of public inquiries. Um, and so hopefully there should be work out, some work on, on that. And then I'm working on a book project that ha- I, I haven't had any time for until really kind of writing the proposal. So I'm kind of at the beginning of a second book project on um, gender and recreation and lived experiences of troops, peacekeeping troops in Egypt and how that, specific experience as the first peacekeepers really framed um, a very distinct identity community cosmopolitan identity that is inherently kind of based on this hyper masculine um, very very orientalist approach to host populations and that the continuities from that identity remain with us today and perhaps inform some of the um environments of sexual exploitation and abuse but also broader um, crimes during peacekeeping missions that we see today so really trying to (laughs) a very small project just a you know just you know just trying to think about those things but yeah so and there's been um there's been some really incredible work that's been done on kind of more military um, histories that are done from perhaps more cultural sources. So I'm using more photos. I'm going to be using um, videos and uh, rather than just UN archival documents and really trying to do some of that much more comprehensive textual work rather than, yeah, focusing so much on institutional stuff. But yeah, so it's exciting. It's exciting time. Sounds fascinating. Well, while you're doing all of those things and diving into um, even more intricate archives, of course, listeners can read the book we've been talking about titled Blue Helmet Bureaucrats, United Nations Peacekeeping and the Reinvention of Colonialism, just out from Cambridge University Press. Margot, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for reading it so thoroughly. Um, (laughs) That was amazing. Thank you so much.